Here we are, Christchurch Symphony Orchestra, Benjamin Norby, Chief Conductor, Gretchen LaRoche, Chief Executive, and we're on our second podcast. I know, I can't believe we made it past number one. Hello, I know. Hello, music lovers. Here we are again for number two. So, so starting off, should we keep with our format of news? News yeah. happening. Do you have any news? Well, only that it's BBC Proms season, and that's always a really wonderful time, even on the other side of the world, because you get to follow... Uh, the enormous amount of activity that's going on in London at the moment. It's such a kind of miraculous um, festival of, of orchestras, uh, the BBC Prom. So I've uh, been interested to follow the different kinds of programs and the different orchestras that are touring through there at the moment. And we are in the heart of uh, preparing for a big concert tomorrow at the Charles Lanny Auditorium. And we're doing a, a very interesting program of music by uh, Ludoslawski, a great Polish composer, which... Uh, Many of the orchestra haven't played before, and I'm, I'm sure many of the audience won't have heard. But that's just been great to sink our teeth into and um, work on that great music. So onwards and upwards for the CSO and working hard for our concerts. <laughs> oh, absolutely. There's definitely been a real uh, sort of palpable buzz uh, around the orchestra this week. Yeah. So I think um, people are getting pretty excited. What about, about your news, Gretchen? Have you got My news? news? Okay. Well, I did think maybe what I should do is, is well, this isn't a party political broadcast, mm -hmm. and we are, of course, apolitical. Mm -hmm. I thought I would just um, point out that this week in, in politics in New Zealand, a uh, big advent with a new Labour leader coming on board, Jacinda Ardern, mm -hmm. and I thought this is relevant for me to point out just because she is the uh, opposition spokesperson for the arts. Uh -huh. She's already done a bit of a reshuffle of, of some of the portfolio responsibilities, but I see she's kept the arts portfolio. Wonderful. So I thought, well, that's very interesting. And are we seeing a little bit of a parallel with uh, Helen Clark, mm -hmm. uh, who was also Minister for the Arts, Culture and Heritage? And as we know, um, under that time, um, the arts really did flourish in this country. So I just thought that's interesting and what that, what that means. Um, I could say more about um, other things, but I probably shouldn't. I'll get Look, it's, it's always wonderful, of course, for us in the arts to see that politicians have an appreciation and, and an understanding, mm -hmm. particularly from the leadership. Uh, I can only talk about the parallels in Australia. Um, Gough Whitlam made himself Minister for the Arts along with most of the other ministries when he took power <laughs> in the 70s, but uh, that was a transformative time there in terms of the structures that were put in place that are still um, you know, in place today and have been very meaningful and powerful. I remember the Victorian Premier Jeff Kennett and Ted Bailey made themselves both Ministers for the Arts, regularly came to Melbourne Symphony concerts, uh, and just to tap into the potential of, you know, the transformative power of the arts and, and what they can contribute to, to the society and to, and to um, the nation, really. Uh, I think that understanding is, is uh, something that's all too rare mm -hmm. uh, in politicians. And, uh, and the other bit of news, I suppose, I'm fascinated by uh, all of this talk about citizenship tests and immigration oh. tests and things. I'm not sure if that, how that's going here in New Zealand, but just sort of, uh, hearing about what's happening in America and particularly Australia where we've got English language tests and all of these things. I think we should um, have one year where we just trial a bassoon proficiency test. So everyone who comes has to have some kind of ability to play the bassoon. And I think you'd find that you'd have a remarkably, um, you know, high level, high quality of individual coming into the country based on that. Or at least some kind of musical ability should be in some general proficiency test for immigrants, surely. I think that, that's, that's a, a very interesting 
sing approach. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, uh, you know, you can either sing, sing, sing something, or play the bassoon. To That's the, right. The southern hemisphere could become the mecca of the double <laughs> reeds. Yeah. Well, look, I've never ever met a bassoonist I didn't like. There you go. So it speaks for itself. Oh. Good point, actually. So bassoonists out there that have worked with Benjamin, well, you've obviously worked your magic. Well done. <laughs> okay, before we dig ourselves into a deeper hole, we should probably move on to the topic of the day now. So, um, well, something that's been, I suppose, very um, relevant to the orchestra this week is um, auditions. Uh, we've actually been auditioning for uh, principal double bass and principal clarinet. And I just thought this is quite a fascinating topic and it's kind of one of those ones that, um, you know, I think musicians or orchestral musicians think about a heck of a lot and outside of orchestras people are often um, quite shocked actually at the processes and this came up, I was actually at a board meeting a couple of months back and um, I'd written something in my board papers in reference to uh, the musician's trial was going well and would conclude at this time and there'd be a decision made. And um, one of the board members actually asked me to explain that a little bit more. You know, it sounded very dramatic, this trial. And so I actually explained the whole process of recruitment. And they were frankly shocked. And these are people, great minds, captains of industry. And they thought it was the most brutal process. So I thought maybe that's a good place to start, is actually just uh, talking about actually what we do and then why. And if there's sort of a better way mm. of doing it. So... Um, Christchurch Symphony Orchestra, the approach we have is um, it's a completely blind and anonymous process. People indicate they're interested in auditioning, they get the excerpts, so sections of orchestral music that's well known. You practice that like nobody's business. Uh, you walk into a room, you're playing some of those excerpts uh, behind screens, no one can see you. There's a panel of sometimes 10, 15, 20 musicians on the other side. They're listening to you. You might be in that room playing for a few minutes. Uh, you have a number of different candidates turn up. At the end of that process, there's a vote from the musicians that have been listening on whether or not they want to pick you to go into a second round. And then at the end of the second round, the process has been repeated and then they might choose someone to go into a trial, so to come in and play with an orchestra for a period of time and see how we all get on together. So it's pretty brutal in the sense that you're there for a very short period of time. It's a pretty blunt instrument. But um, I wonder actually, so that's just a quick overview of what actually goes on. I don't know, what are your thoughts on auditions these days? Well, there has to be some kind of process. I mean, it's a highly competitive area. Um, Often when audiences see an orchestra, they don't always think that every individual has won their place mm. through some kind of audition process. And we need to be able to, to judge people. And of course, the music that they play in the auditions is prescribed by the panel. Uh, people prepare excerpts from the orchestral repertoire and will play a bit of a concerto um, so that we can really compare them uh, to one another. Uh, look, it's not a perfect process by any means. I think. Uh, it's a shame that there are some people out there who would probably make wonderful uh, orchestral players who don't audition well. It's something that uh, musicians talk about. It becomes harder the older you become. Yeah. It's sort of there's that fearlessness of youth that seems to be um, better suited to that real pressure cooker early environment where you're too young to realise the situation <laughs> you're in. Um, and uh, but nevertheless, the kind of blowtorch uh, pressure is something that 
you will also feel in a concert experience as well. And so whilst it's different because you're not just playing solo in a concert, obviously, um, you have to show that you can, I suppose, handle that situation and make a very, very strong impression very quickly. So uh, difficult process. Usually it's very uh, obvious to the panel which candidates are worth you know, uh, listening to again or, or taking to trial, but often we disagree. Mm. And so we have discussions and, and we um, argue the cases for you know, individuals based on our own thoughts. And uh, whether there's a different way, I'm not sure. Um, I kind of like the idea of the anonymity because mm. particularly in the past, orchestras have been so male-dominated. Um, I mean, we're going back a while now, but I think that was actually quite a big development in terms of just gender representation. Um, it, it really levelled the playing field uh, when people were playing behind a screen and that there was no indication of who they were or their gender. Yeah, I think that's an interesting one. You know, um, at the moment in New Zealand, that's a, a big thing that's quite topical. It's unconscious bias. And yes, yeah, certainly the screen anonymous approach is a very effective way for, I think, removing um, mm. that and, and that as a possibility. Um, do you see that in come into play? Uh, so, you know, you've got this completely anonymous uh, screened live audition component, and then if you have someone that's a, selected as a trialist going into the orchestra, what happens then, though? Does it, does unconscious bias have a part to play at that point? How much can it be about personality politics? Um, how much is it just about how well that person plays? Well, I think that can um, trump all of those other factors. If somebody is playing supremely well, unless there is a very destabilizing um, clash of personalities or some kind of behind the scenes reasoning, uh, usually the playing wins the day. Um, everybody's really thrilled to have a strong player in the orchestra, but an orchestra is a collection of people. Those interpersonal relationships are important. An orchestra is about more than just playing. Mm. It's about being together. It's about working together and having a, a sense of um, camaraderie. And so that can only be found out through a trial situation. And, uh, you know, look, it's, I think, unusual that people don't pass a trial, um, but it, it certainly happens mm. and uh, those situations are very hard. I think it's a, a difficult thing when a trial is extended because often orchestras will say oh we're not quite sure so we'd like to extend the trial for another three months or something. The poor person's got to go through this sort of microscope um, experience for another three months while everyone listens to them and decides whether they're good enough to be in the orchestra. So. Do you think it really is that people don't know at that point when that trial is extended and you're getting the we're unsure message I mean, why do you think that does happen? Really genuinely, is it that people at that point, after maybe that person's played with the orchestra for three months, they actually can't tell? Or is it simply an unspoken message of there's areas of concern, we like the person, we want to see if they can fix them? I think it can be all of those things. You just never know. It could be just that certain individuals within the orchestra disagree. Yeah. And so the fairest thing to do is, well, let's extend the trial and see if those concerns are allayed and, you know, maybe the conductor is involved as well and wants to see if they can develop in a certain area. Mm. Um, so, you know, you're looking for ability but also potential, particularly with younger players who come in, you want to see are they responding to direction, can they yeah. keep, keep developing and, and 
whether they might not be perfect at that point, they could be in another six to 12 months um, and fit in really well. Yeah. So uh, That's actually a really good point that, that you raise, that idea of also pointing on, on the principle of potential to, to develop and grow with younger musicians. And I know that that's something that a lot of orchestras really grapple with, how you deal with what you think this person is going to develop into versus, say, somebody that's fully formed, if you like, sort of mid-career. Mid but um, is that common? Are you, do you get a sense that there is a general uh, increasing support amongst the orchestral world to actually be more open to appointing with with potential versus you know really holding the line? All you have to do is look at some of the world's biggest orchestras, Berlin Philharmonic, London Symphony, um, Philharmonia, these, these kinds of orchestras. Uh, I think the principal trombone of the London Symphony is 19. <laughs> That's outrageous! <laughs> from memory, I thought I might have these slightly wrong, but from memory a trumpeter has been appointed to the Berlin Philharmonic who's 21 years mm. old. So these things happen. Mm. Uh, orchestras aren't always sort of middle-aged mm. people or mm. older people. Um, in fact, I would say in the 1970s, when there, there was a sort of a cyclical turnover of older players suddenly leaving, a lot of players came out of institutions, uh, tertiary institutions, in, straight into orchestral jobs, which they have then held for 35 years. Yeah. And now there's another period of renewal and regeneration of these jobs. Because that's the thing, an orchestral job is one of the very few jobs in life, particularly if you're working for an institution such as the BBC or the ABC in Australia, I don't know what the equivalent would be here, New Zealand Symphony, I suppose. It's a tenured mm. position, it's in perpetuity. You own that position until such a time as you can't do it anymore or you choose to retire. And there's not many jobs like that in the world. <laughs> now that sounds like a whole other topic of conversation, <laughs> actually. Is well, this is why the audition, but it has yeah. major implications on yeah. the audition because it's such a big decision. Within the orchestra, somebody could be thinking, well, I could potentially be sitting next to this person mm. for every concert for the next 20 years. Yeah, the stakes are high. The stakes are high. And it, yeah. it, 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 I think it becomes very interesting as well when you're actually dealing, say, with a situation where an orchestra is actually demonstrably developing itself artistically mm. and that must throw up quite a few challenges as well so where the artistic standard might have been 15 years ago versus where it currently is and then is there a movement are all the musicians able to come with that yeah that's an interesting one and I think uh, the the idea of can we do it better mm. in terms of what we're looking for in in the musicians who come in in the modern orchestral age, as orchestras do more uh, things mm. such as education, work, community engagement, all of those things, we're not, we're not always only looking for a player of the highest level, we're actually looking for more skills than that. That's something that is not currently included in an audition process. We never have an interview. I mean, I suppose the idea is you find out in the trial if those things are there, but um, as the orchestral job diversifies, I think you'll then see that reflected mm. in the audition process. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting to see what different ways things could be done. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I can see that, you know, from the CSO's point of view, um, you know, with our, with our 
exciting plans uh, coming up. That's actually some really interesting discussions that we're going to be having to have um, and with the musicians themselves as well, actually how this impacts on our recruitment uh, going ahead I think will be very interesting. I suppose just, just to finish off, I just want to track back to just something you said a little bit earlier, Ben, and, and that was around just the involvement of, of your chief conductor in, in, in the appointment process. And I'm just interested, I'm going to put you on the hot spot now and sort of say, now, you know, where do you stand on the, I suppose, um, direct um, involvement or intercession that a chief conductor might have in terms of helping them fulfil their vision for the orchestra through appointments? Should it be largely driven by the orchestra itself or is there a valid role for actually the chief um, really being very directive in this? There's two schools of thought. Um, on the one hand, the conductor serves at the pleasure of the orchestra. The conductor is probably not going to be there as long as the musicians. <laughs> <laughs> and that means that the main parts of, or you know, I suppose the, the decision needs to be well and truly owned and made by the musicians. Does that mean the conductor should have no input at all? Not necessarily. It, it would depend on the, on the dynamic between the conductor and the orchestra and the players. Uh, I personally, I, I really do uh, think it's important to let the musicians lead the discussions in audition situations and to give an opinion when asked, but not to preempt the decision making of the musicians. I can have my own thoughts and to be honest, generally they're the same as, mm. as, as those of the musicians. But when there is um, the need for an objective opinion or to try and uh, you know, have a casting kind of vote. I think that's when the chief conductor can be can be useful, mm. and that relationship, you know, has to be also there between that player and the conductor. The conductor has to think, especially in the case of principal players, mm. you need to have confidence that that relationship's going to work, and it's mm. the kind of player you're looking for uh, that, that you think is going to be best for the orchestra. So. Sometimes that objectivity is very important, mm. I think. Um, but in an ideal world, yes, I think first and foremost the players lead those decisions. Mm. And then uh, some orchestras, the, the chief conductor has the power of veto over mm. any audition. So, you know, that sets up a very interesting uh, dynamic as well. It certainly does. And then I guess equally too, the responsibility um, on the shoulders of the chief at that point then if they get it wrong as well mm -hmm. and and yeah are they best placed to understand the dynamic of the city the region that that orchestra is based in? Oh well you, you're wanting mm. to protect the process and protect yeah. the integrity of the process because it's all very well if you've got benevolent um, people <laughs> in charge uh, but all it takes is for somebody to come in and want to appoint lots of their mates yeah. you know and and fly people in from here and there to take over these positions and that happens. Mm. So, you know, it's just about making sure the process is fair and, and, and transparent and has great integrity. Um, so, yes, I think the conductor has a role to play, but certainly not the, the role to play. Well, that's reassuring, I'm sure, for CSO uh, musicians to know that they, they, can't, they don't need to worry about turning up to work and finding a your fire. No, no I'm, just a, I'm a very benevolent dictator. <laughs> 
remember perhaps we can add that. Actually, <laughs> two title. Benjamin Northey, Chief Conductor, BD. Yeah. I've got my business card. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> well, I, I think I hope that that's given just a bit of an, an oversight of the recruitment process, particularly as it ties in, I guess, with CSO. Some orchestras have different approaches to this. Um, and it's certainly interesting if, if, um, you know, with, if our listeners out there do want to send in any uh, questions, um, you know, any particular parts of that we haven't covered or you'd like us to talk about more. Or frankly, you've heard enough. <laughs> we're happy either way. Um, so I think we're moving on from our topic of the day. So I guess we'll, we'll go into our what's on your mind section right now. So. What's on your mind? Well, I've got lots on my mind at the moment. I mean, a, a lot of it's around venues because uh, we are about to go um, in and do a Masterworks concert in the Charles Lunny Auditorium uh, with large-scale repertoire, which we haven't done for a while. Charles Lunny, for those people who don't know, it holds about, what, 700 yeah. people? Yeah. Beautiful space, mm -hmm. um, raked seating, uh, auditorium style. Uh, the audience get to look down on the orchestra, which I think is ideal yeah. for a venue like that. And... Um, just how different the experience will be in there than it will be than it would have been if we'd been in the Air Force Museum, which is a much more cavernous um, kind of venue. And uh, thinking about acoustics and the size of orchestras and all that kind of thing, I'm fascinated uh, to see what it sounds like when we get in there tonight, <laughs> which is very exciting. But I think it'll be a, a great venue for this concert, actually. Oh, yeah. fantastic! Mm. Ah, very good. What about you? Oh, what's up? Well, it's funnily enough, actually, um, something very similar. I've been thinking a lot about venues as well, and it started um, last week. I, I went to the movies, which actually I don't do as much as I, I Every time I go, I think, God, oh, this, is, this is really great. Why don't I do this more often? You know, I went along to see Dunkirk, and um, you know, I was sitting there watching the big screen, and I was in this very, very comfortable seat. It was just a seat like every other in the venue um, and it was it was wide and it had great cushioning and good back support and lots of leg room and it had a cup holder and I was delighted with this because I went in with a glass of wine um, and uh, <laughs> I was really sort of kicking back and enjoying this and I thought gosh you know these movie theatres they've really had to think about their customers the whole experience and how that's changed over the years from the days where you had you know those rickety flip-up seats that sort of whacked you on the bottom when you stood up you know in the in the sort of the wooden floors you could roll your jaffers down and so anyway sorry I'm digressing a little here but um <laughs> you know I was sort of thinking about this and you know and it got me thinking about oh you know so many venues um don't let people when when the orchestras are playing you know don't take drinks in with you not because you're going to make a mess in the venue but because you might knock it over and it's going to make a noise and intrude in the and i thought well i i get that absolutely respect that but then I started to think, yeah, but that's a funny way to solve the problem mm. when, when cinemas have actually just sort of put a cup holder there. <laughs> and I started to think, I know this just sounds a bit abstract, but what I was really thinking about was, you know, actually, do we need to be thinking about this a little bit more and encouraging the venue owners of our concert halls mm. and so on, um, you know, to be thinking about this more seriously. Mm. I think orchestras are trying really hard to think about customer experience, audience mm. experience, but we've all got to work together on this because mm. if you can go to the movies, have a jolly nice time, sit in a really comfy seat, lots of leg room, 
pop your wine and your cup or your you know your coffee yeah. and your cup yeah. holder and so well is it too much to ask that we actually extend the same courtesy into concert halls mm, not certainly worth a try are all of these things worth worth trying absolutely mm. I know it's something we've been talking about you know is really mindful of that whole experience mm. um, and, and how things are evolving but yeah. um, I just that was something that was on my mind well it's always <laughs> good to think about think about opportunities to have a glass of wine Greg. I think this is very important so. <laughs> and I think on that note I think that's a excellent place to finish this podcast stay tuned for next time we might be slurring our words let's see <laughs>